Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast, the interview edition, brought to you by GMC and the new Sierra AT4X. When you host a hockey talk show, you know the people who are always going to deliver when you interview them. You know the type that I'm talking about. Great stories, great energy, entertaining perspective, and a certain, how should we say, old school charm that comes along with being a former player who's now an analyst. Phil Bork is one of those people. Elliot and I knew we were getting that when we sat down with Phil the morning of the Winter Classic at our hotel's lobby bar a scant few hours before puck drop. But what we also ended up getting was much, much more. Sure, you'll hear great stories about Yaramir Yager, Mario Lemieux, goalies Ken Reggett and Wendell Young changing on the fly, his Jofa helmet unscrewing the Stanley Cup to scratch his name on the inside of it. But you're also going to hear a reflective and at times emotional Phil Bork. You know, this interview took so many unique turns that by the end, when we shook hands and wished each other well, Elliot and I wondered to each other if that wasn't the best interview we've ever done on the podcast. Very well, maybe. And none of it was because of either me or Elliot. This was all Phil Bork. Now, a warning. Bork does talk openly and quite emotionally about how his father treated him growing up around hockey. Uh, It is not easy to listen to. Quite bluntly, it's quite disturbing and potentially triggering. Please be careful. In this interview, Phil references a book that he wrote and want to make sure that it gets a plug right off the top. Uh, It's part of the If These Walls Could Talk series. Pittsburgh Penguins, stories from the Pittsburgh Penguins ice, locker room, and press box published by the good people at Triumph Books back in 2019. It is still available everywhere. So here's Phil Bork, analyst for the Pittsburgh Penguins, former two-time Stanley Cup champion, in conversation with us at the Winter Classic in Boston. Elliot, we're here in the hotel lobby. It is the morning of the Winter Classic. Boston Bruins hosting the Pittsburgh Penguins. The excitement is building, and we get to talk to Phil Bork, two-time Stanley Cup champion, Pittsburgh Penguin analyst. Uh, First of all, Phil, thanks so much for this. And do you wish that they did events like this when you were playing? Especially in Boston, yeah. I mean, this is my hometown. I grew up 40 minutes from here. My dad was more of a baseball fan than a hockey fan. So I wish, as a young kid that grew up like every other young kid, Play, you know, learn to play hockey and skate outside, it would have been great, yeah. You know, this is um, you know, not the Penguins' first time doing this, not the Bruins' first time doing this, not the Fenways' first time doing this. When you look back at that Pittsburgh-Buffalo, I call it the Snow Globe game, right? How much of an influence do you think that had? Like, when we look back and the, the book is written on that era of hockey, how important do you think that event was? I think it was huge. I think it brought in so many new fans that were fringe fans that thought, oh, wow, what is this? This is an outdoor game. Let's get tickets. Let's go. It'll be fun. But I think it was so spectacular, not only the the image that you described so perfectly, like a snow globe, uh, but the ending, the way it went. I think that people just thought, well, anybody who was on the fence about the game of hockey, they became all in. Phil, when I, when I think of you as preparing for the interview, you know, one of your uh, compatriots, and it's a compliment, they kind of compare you to Forrest Gump of the Penguins, right? You've been around in all the great times. You've seen so many great things in your career as a player and now a broadcaster. So I want to ask you about some of those days because those were the days that really put the Penguins on the map. Okay, 
What's the best Mario Lemieux story you can tell that won't get us fired and won't end your friendship with him? And maybe that people haven't heard before. Um, I don't think he'll mind me saying this story or telling this story. When his back was really bothering him, I got to see what he went through. And, you know, you've heard the story about Tracy Lupe, who was the, the uh, stick boy. That would, uh, had, if you remember the old shoe stores that you go and they have that, that box that they would slide up and you put your foot on? Yes. Mario would have one of those, and Tracy would have a little stool and lace up his skates. But that's not the story I want to tell. The story I want to tell is how many times I would walk by him and he stunk like ass. He stunk so bad because he was taking this uh, like uh, uh, steroid that they would give horses. But when he would sweat at all, it would give off a stench that would literally punch you in the nose. So you'd walk by him, you'd go, whoa. But that's the stuff that he was trying to do. There was moments when he'd be back with Skip there or, or a medical trainer, and you think, there's no way he's playing. And there's times he wouldn't come out for the beginning of the game. His back was so bad. That's what people don't realize. What he went through just to get out there. And then once he got out there, I guess the back would loosen up a little bit, and he would do great things. But what I got to witness was behind-the-scenes stuff that you're like, there's no way he's going to play or should be playing, but he did. All those years, like I remember I was still in university when the cancer diagnosis came down. And the thing about Lemieux is that I have so much incredible respect for is that there were so many obstacles thrown up his way, and he just knocked them all down. I would bet you would probably say the greatest hockey player ever in your mind. I would, because uh, what kind of ice cream you like? I like all ice cream. Okay, what kind, what kind, what kind of, you like? chip? Okay, like I like vanilla. Okay, yeah. so like some people say Wayne's the best. Some people yeah. say Gordy's the best. To me, it's what kind of ice cream you like. I think Mario is the most complete player, and to me, that's my favorite player and the greatest. I don't think anybody would have a problem if you came on this podcast knowing where you work, where you've been in your history, and you said Mario was the best. I, I don't think anybody's sure. got a problem with that. But I, I don't know where was anybody thrown as many roadblocks as Mario was. So I, I'm, I'd love to hear your stories about him, like that story, other stories you've got, just about what it was like with him as he grinded his way through, and the night he came back, winning the Olympics with Canada in 2002. Like it must have been so incredible for you to see everything he did after all those hurdles were thrown. Well, you in think front of him. Wayne played with so many Hall of Famers, really throughout his career, right? Mm-hmm. Mario, not so much. You know, from Warren Young to Bob Erie to Phil Bork. I mean, he had to play with a bunch of jabronis <laughs> a lot of times. And, and he made us really good players, right? Mm-hmm. Which great players do. I will tell you this, though. When, uh, help me with the year. I want to say 88, Canada Cup? 87. 87, thank you. When he came back from that, it was so obvious he was a different person and a different player. I think he'll admit, that changed him. Mm. To be with those other great players... And not only performed the way he did, but he felt like not only I belong, but I belong in the 1%. And he was a different player, a different person when he came back from that tournament. You know, I'm really curious about how Mario mixed in the room. You know, there's stories of, you know, Kelly Rudy has told us both, you know, stories of, you know, Wayne Gretzky, you know, when one of the Kings coaches would come in and rip everybody except for 99 and Wayne would stand up and say, that's BS. Like, I'm on this team. I was crap out there. If you're going to rip them, you rip me too. Don't be scared of me just because I'm Wayne Gretzky. What was Mario like? Was he the same way? Mario's a pretty quiet guy. You know, Mario's a shy guy. Uh, Mario liked to be around people that make him laugh. Like Sid. Like Sid. 
Colby Armstrong, yeah. one of Sid's best friends, because Colby knows to push the buttons, but also, and I think Wayne's the same way, yeah. that they like guys that can bust their balls, yes. but not disrespect them, right? So they feel like one of the boys, which when they're always in this, this, this refined air that they live their life in, they want to be one of the boys. They want to get their balls busted. You know, and so I think that's part of why Mario hangs out with Ty Domi, right? Ty <laughs> makes him laugh, right? But Ty, you know, treats him like one of the guys too. And so Mario was a guy that always kind of liked to just relax, you know, just kind of stay in the shadows. He didn't want to be in the spotlight. He was in the spotlight so many times in his life. Then he's with the guys. He just wants to blend in. What would you guys bust him for? Like, what would Mario Lemieux get busted <laughs> You're for? right. I mean, what can, what can we bust him no, about? No, but there, I, there's got to be yeah. some habit he has that you guys were all over or something like that. Uh, I don't know. Like, you know, leaving a lit cigarette in the bathroom where he'd go in between periods, to, you know, the light went up, in, you know? I mean, that's, you know, he used to do that early on. You know, I don't think he did it in his latter part of career. I don't know, something stupid like that. But it's kind of like Sid, you know? he's He lives such a simple life that it's tough to... You know, it doesn't wear flashy suits, doesn't drive a fancy car, none of, none of that. So they live such a, like a, a black and white life yeah. that there's, it's tough to find things to bust them on. Yager, you went over to see him for like a day a couple of years ago, and you guys were very close. I mean, right before COVID, yeah. We, well, we had drifted apart, really. Oh. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't like Yarma Yager when he was with the Bruins, with you know, the latter part of his career. I thought he was uh, uh, arrogant. I thought he was pompous. Uh, and I, I didn't like his personality, to be quite frank with you guys. And I don't know if that got back to him or not, but we just kind of drifted apart. And I've, I'd stop and see him after a game. He didn't really have time for me. I'm like, okay, fine, no big deal. But the Penguins had asked me if I was going to be talking to him or seeing him because they want to put his jersey up in the rafters. And you think, wow, Yogg's played for, what, eight different teams? Long-time Ranger, long-time cap. But his first two years in the league, he won the Stanley Cup. Never won again, right? Which is incredible, right? Mm -hmm. Lots of kicks at the camp, but never won again. But I took a flight from Philly over to uh, Paris and then over to Prague. And he actually had a, a car service waiting for me at the hotel. And I went right to Cladno. And I watched him play the game. Uh, and then afterwards, he came up. He was still in his underwear. They were his underneath his uniform. Came up. Had a couple beers in the VIP room. And we had an unbelievable talk. It was, it was so he had... So kind of let that guard down and that arrogance and that, that attitude. He had let it all down because I think he knew that it was the beginning of the end for him, but he didn't want it to end. And this is still two years ago. And now he's, he's, he's still just, playing. He's going to be 51 in February and he's still playing. He just played the other day. Uh, but he knows his name is so tied to that team, not just as an owner, but for the sponsors and the big sponsors. Mm. Because once he leaves, the big sponsors leave. So that's part of why he's hanging on. But also, I wanted to kind of plant that seed with him that. You were loved in Pittsburgh, man. I just want you to kind of close your eyes for a second and imagine what that night's going to be like. You know Mario's going to be there. That night of putting your number 68 up in the yeah. rafters right next to 66. You know, Brian Burke tells uh, a wonderful story about Yager before the draft, before he gets picked. Have you heard this one, Fried? No, I'm not sure. So he's interviewing Yager, and he's you know checking all the, all the, all the boxes, and he, and he asks him how many teams he's captained along the way, and he says none. I've never been captain of a team. And he says, oh, okay, so hang on, hang on a second. That's a, that's a flag. And he paused. He says, because I always played three years up. I was always three years younger than everybody. And Berkey's like, okay. What are some of the things that you saw from Yager where you're like, I've never seen this before? You know, when he first came, he didn't speak any English at all. 
So getting Yari Herdina from the Calgary Flames was huge. He sat next to Yogs, and he was, and also Brian Trache was huge his first few years. Just kind of taking him under his wing, and then this broken English saying it's going to be okay. I'll tell you a quick story. It's about halfway through the season, and people forget this because his career was so great. But he used to come through the middle of the ice with his head down. And I remember one time he got laid out so bad. We're like, oh, boy, he's not going to get up. He comes to the bench. This is at the old Civic Arena. I'm sitting next to him, and he starts crying. And I knew he was incredibly homesick. The language, he, he wasn't able to do all the things he was able to do in the Czech League. And he was frustrated. And he just started crying like, like one of those, <gasps> like couldn't catch his breath crying. Well, sure enough, big Kevin Stevens stands up and goes, is he crying? Is he effing crying? I was like, Artie, Artie, I got it, I got it. He's like, tell that effing baby to stop crying because that's kind of how we talked to each other back then. Mm -hmm. So I got next to Yogg's. I said, it's okay, man, it's okay, it's all right. You and I, we're up next, we're up next, we're going to be okay. You know, but he went through some real struggles. People forget about that. He could have easily just said, this isn't for me. Like, I'm, I'm going to go back to Checo for a while. But he stuck it out, and the bigger the game's, the better he played, and next thing you know, he just took off. Was there a moment where he did something in a game where all you guys looked at each other and said, holy smokes, now I see what we've got here? Really, it was that 92 series against the Rangers when we lost Mario to the broken hand. We lose Joey Mullen to a big hit from Chris King, and uh, we needed him. And that's when he became a man. That's when he became an elite superstar. And it's like He took over that series. And it didn't matter what the Rangers were going to do. You could have put 20 Patrice Bergerons on him that night. It didn't matter. He took over that series, and really, he never looked back from there. So when you saw him a couple of years ago in Claudeau, did he get the message? Is it, is it going to happen? Yeah, it's going to happen. Great. It's, gonna, I think the, it's Penguins, the way it should be. I actually talked to him about a week ago. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, like, Penguins are thinking like maybe April. He said, Borky, I haven't retired yet. Because that was his thing. He goes, once I retire, yeah. he goes, I'll be all for it. We can talk about how the logistics and everything. What he did say, he, he said, I don't know if this will ever happen. He goes, because some teams came over to Prague, and I guess he dropped the puck, and he, he saw all that. He said, I don't know if there's any way the NHL could get the Penguins to come over to Prague. I would love to have that moment with the team here, do a puck drop, announce my retirement then, and maybe a couple weeks later, come back to Pittsburgh and put the jersey in the rafters. That's wow. kind of his that's kind of his his vision, his dream. So, I have no power, but we're putting this clip all over social media. We'll see if it works. <laughs> It'd be pretty special. Cuz I mean, you you forget and you ask me like you lose track. There's yeah. just so many incredible moments when he was in his prime, right? Just the power, the hanging on to the puck, the shot, I mean, it was all there. Uh, I want to ask you, you mentioned Kevin Stevens. Um, you know, I asked you before the interview if it would be okay to ask you about Kevin Stevens. Just, you know, how's he doing? You guys keep really in touch? Good. good. Really I'm good. glad to hear that. Yeah, because uh, there were some dark days, yeah. you know, when uh, things went south for him. He, he should be in jail, right? It was, it was that bad. And uh, I guess the judge figured, hey, this guy can do more good in the community than bad sitting in a jail cell. So part of his release was to go out and talk to kids, talk to groups. And he didn't just do it to kind of, you know, check the box. He's continuing to do it. And uh, I think his, his uh, charity is called Power Forward 25 or something like that. His sister, Kelly, is incredible. She's, she's so behind him all the way. And so, yeah, if, I mean, if somebody that's listening that has a company that, you know, bring them in. 
because he speaks from the heart and he's gotten better at it. You know, Big Artie with that Boston accent, a little rough around the edges, but he's worked at it. And now he understands my words are powerful. What I went through is a powerful stuff. I mean, everybody sitting in this room has gone through something at some time, but are you able to find a, a platform and a stage where you can take the crap you went through, you can flip it upside down, and you can open people's eyes to say, wow, I'm a better person for that half hour or hour I just spent with Kevin Stevens. Mm. Okay, I asked you about this before the interview, <laughs> so you're primed for it. <laughs> April 16th, 1992. Elliot, we talked about this about a month ago on the podcast. We wondered if there's ever been a situation where goalies have changed on the fly mm-hmm. in the NHL, and there has, and Phil was in the game, Ken Reggett, Wendell Young, Pittsburgh Penguins, New York Rangers, you're on the ice? I'm on the ice. Take it away. Yeah, we, we had talked about it. And, uh, you know, Scotty Bowman was the head coach, a great Scotty, right? And so we're thinking, oh, Scotty's not going to like this at all. But we didn't care. I mean, we were just a bunch of... So you talked the, the goalies into doing it? Well, no, I wasn't. No, no, Cause I'm Scott, not, Scotty I'm not going to take that, no. Because I talked to Ken Reggett, and Reggett yeah. said that there are a few guys on the team like, yeah, guys, it was you, definitely you It was definitely a group. I'm sure Troy Loney <laughs> was involved. Bobby Airy was involved. I'm sure guys like that uh, that like to stir the pot up a little bit. And uh, we thought, well, great. if we can do it, let's do it, you know? Um, and so we, we probably did it when Scotty had his back turned, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so I just remember being in the offense in the Ranger zone and looking down the ice and boom, there goes Kenny. And I see Wendell come flying on and, and nobody caught it. Right. That's like one referee. Right. So why the hell not? You know, but we were just a bunch of crazy lunatics back then that, that we just all got what along. What was the somehow. bench like after that? Because you guys, you guys going must have loved crazy. it because you pulled it off. We're just howling. Yeah. yeah just because we pulled it off. Yeah. I mean, that's. That's what it was. It was just like a bunch of, like doing something in school, you know, that you weren't supposed to do, but the teachers didn't catch you. Yeah. You know, so you're all kind of high-fiving each other. And, you know, Scotty knew what we were. Scott, when Scotty, I mean, what's he going to do? You know, we were a bunch of crazies. Well, that was the thing that people all say is that Scotty Bowman ran his teams with an iron fist, but the one team he couldn't do that with was that Pittsburgh team. Tell you a quick story, because if you remember that year, you know, we're trying to repeat, we lose – Badger Bob Johnson, the brain cancer in November. Yeah. Around February, I think, we were bad, man. We were not a good hockey team. We were in jeopardy of missing the playoffs. We're out in Calgary. Craig Patrick calls a team meeting in the hotel, in the ballroom. Kind of airs it out and just says, hey, anybody got something to say? Let's say it right now. Trotz got up. Peter Taglinetti got up. Bunch of guys. Troy Loney got up. Finally, I said, I'm, I'm going to speak my piece here. I got up and I said, Craig... We can't win with Scotty Bowman. Well, like, oh, the whole room went quiet. What are you, it's the greatest coach to ever be in the game, right? So Craig being Craig, if you know Craig, he's a very cerebral, yes. you know, even-keeled guy. He said, you know, Trotz, what you said, I, I like what you said. Tags, what you said, that's all good, good, good. And he went around the room and he said, you know, okay, we can, we can work with this. Well, you know, that's something. And he, then he kind of circled back and he said, and Borky, what you said? I don't agree with. I think we can win with Scotty Bowman, and we will win with Scotty Bowman. I'll go to Scotty. He'll meet you halfway. You meet him the other halfway, and we're going to start winning some hockey games. And he walked out of the room. We won that game in Calgary. Go check the record. And since that moment, we took off and we repeated with Scotty. Uh, listening to that story, and just I wasn't in the business then, but I, I kind of remember the whole situation. Do you think the team and the organization needed someone to say, what you said 
So it was out in the open? I think so. And that's what I try to encourage even to my 16-year-old son that plays hockey. Mm -hmm. Speak from the heart. If there's something inside here or that little voice, you know, we all have that little voice. Some people say it's your conscience. Some people say, you know, if you're more spiritual, it's the Holy Spirit. When that little voice talks to you, Freaking listen to it. And I'm not just talking about stuff that I'm talking about now. I think in all, everything in life, you know, when you've left the house and you think you left the stove on, the voice is saying, go back and check the freaking stove, you know, do it, right? And that just, something just spoke to me that I wanted to win so freaking bad that, you know, Craig might just say, no, like trade deadline hadn't come. He could ship me off for saying this, but I didn't care because I wanted to win so bad. Tell us about that room, because that's a lot of yeah. really, really large personalities in there. You know what changed it was uh, Paul Coffey when he came in. He changed the room. He changed everything in Pittsburgh hockey. What we did on the ice, off the ice, how to be a team, how to win as a team. And he wasn't there in 92, obviously, because yeah. that was a, one of the ballsiest moves ever by Craig Patrick to trade two Hall of Famers. Mark Recchi and Paul Coffey, but yeah. we were just a bunch of alpha males. We became a group that we weren't afraid. We weren't afraid of winning, you know? And I know that might not make sense, but if you think about it for a while, it does make sense. Because to win, you got to leave it all out there. And every single guy, you're only as strong as your weakest link if you want to be a championship team. And that's what Coff taught us, that don't be afraid to go for it. Don't be afraid to be great. And don't be afraid to say what needs to be said sometimes, even though it might not be uh, what everybody wants to hear. But if you if it comes from the heart, then it will be well received. He's blunt, very blunt. In I a, like it, but in a very professional way, where it's not always what you say, but how you say it. And uh, nobody is better than Cough. When did you guys realize in '91, the first one, Minnesota, that you guys were going to win the Stanley Cup? Um, after Game Three. When we opened up the newspaper, and I don't think the North Stars knew what they were saying. I think it was just kind of, they were asked a question, and they answered the question, but they were asked because they were up 2-1 in the series. And they said, you know, hey, have you ever thought about what it would be when the Stanley Cup? And, you know, somebody said, something, oh, yeah, I'd like to have a big diamond ring. And, yeah, we, you know, we saw where the Minnesota Twins who had won a couple years ago, won the World Series. Their parade route, that all got back to us. Boom. Right on the blackboard. You hear about blackboard stuff. Yeah. This was literally cut out of the paper, hockey tape, two inch, you know, inch and a half white, boom, on the board. We won three straight. Once that was put up there, it lit a fire under us. It was over. It was over at that point. You know, one of the guys said, one of the guys I think of is, is Mike Peluso. When, when New Jersey won their first cup and he's mm -hmm. crying on the bench, mm -hmm. he, he can't go out and skate because he's so emotional. But the game you guys win the cup, you win 8 nothing. Yeah. First of all, Mario's goal. Yeah. Well, I hope you folks at home are joining the crowd here for a standing ovation for one of the prettiest goals you'd ever want to see. Very few could ever make this play like Mario Lemieux to put his team up 3-1. Here's another look at it. One against the world, and he digs the whole world on it here as he gets Chambers going right, left, and in down. Casey thinks he's got him and going to surprise him by coming out. But you don't surprise this guy when he gets the puck and thinks he might score. Beautiful is the only word to describe that play by number 66. Holy cow. What a goal by Mario Lemieux. Like those were two good defensemen that he made look bad. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you know for 20 minutes that you're about to win the Stanley Cup. Like what's... When you 
say that, Elliot, the thing that comes to my mind is this is how dialed in I was or had to be, mm-hmm. you know, as an undrafted fringe player that always in fear of losing my job. It's just this how I was wired. That I remember looking up at the clock. It was 8 nothing, about two minutes to go. And I was sitting next to Mark Recchi. And uh, I said, hey, Rex, we're going to win the effing cup. And that's when that and it wasn't until that point where I allowed myself just breathe, breathe. And now you can enjoy it because to that point it was keep going, boys, keep going, stay on them. We're up eight nothing. But that's the fear that the healthy fear that I think you need to have to get to that promised land. Listen to 32 Thoughts, the podcast, ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Okay. What does the inside of the Stanley Cup look like? <laughs> well, there were some uh, three French guys that had engraved their name on the inside, which was a big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, then I popped off the bottom because I... I'd had it for five days. This is way before yeah. Phil Pritchett and all that stuff. And something had come loose on the inside. And I'm not a handy guy, but I got my toolbox out, popped off the bottom, put a pen light in my mouth, and I crawled inside, and I tightened up where the original bowl meets the tiered part. Yep. And three French guys had engraved their name. It was, it was slight. They had repaired it. And they just been repaired by da-da-da, and they put the date. Light bulb, put some beers on ice, got the screwdriver, took me three hours, and I put enjoy it. I put my name, Pittsburgh Penguins, 91 champs. So I was the only guy, and it was, shh, I was the only guy to have my name on the outside and the inside. But I think J.J. Daniel did it the next year. Uh, and uh, I think he did it in 93 when Montreal. Montreal won. I think some other guys have done it since, but you don't hear too much about it. So if we open it up now, would those all no. still be in there? No, oh, okay. I, I think because, you know, they take uh, the couple yeah, the parties rings off, the yes. rings off, and mm-hmm. I think then they've they've buffed out some of the names on the inside. I think, I think. I don't know. I haven't asked. It's so a good question. When you allowed yourself, let's, let's go back here a second. When you allowed yourself to enjoy the moment where you're about to win the Stanley Cup, like what was he mentioned, undrafted player. Yeah. You, know, you played Kingston and Junior, and then Baltimore yeah. Skipjacks yeah. and Gene Ubriaco yeah. and, you know, Bennett Wolf, like all yeah. these legendary names, That's right? Good, yeah. What goes through your mind? A movie reel. Mm-hmm. Look, you get me emotional just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, just all the people that said, oh, Bork, you'll never make it, you know? Um, probably my dad, you know? All that shit with my dad. Um, the few people that actually, like, that stuck by you, like, it's, it's emotional, man, because, like, what you have to do to get there, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. So it's, I don't want to push you or anything, but you mentioned your dad and yeah. all that. What are you referring to there? Oh my dad, he's he's a bully. Yeah. He uh he abused me bad, man. It's bad. Bad shit. He just I wrote a book recently about it and helped get it out, you know, but my dad would like he beat me up, man. Like if I had a bad game, he'd beat me up. I remember my mom having to jump on his back to pull him off of me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's hockey, man. You know, like I don't know. Didn't have to be that way. That's right. all. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Just tell us the name of your book. If These Walls Could Talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was originally just supposed to be my time as a, as a penguin, 
But then with Triumph Books, I just said, Len, I, got, I can't just, there's too much to it. There's too many layers mm-hmm. to how I got to be a penguin, you know? So they said, okay, let it fly, just write it. And, uh, you know, I, I talked the way I talked to you guys, you know, like I drop F-bombs and, you know, and he said, just do it. Just do it the way you would do it. And so I'm proud of it because it's, a lot of it was self-inflicted. Like some of the stuff, like you talk about being a, a skipjack. Yeah. I, I haven't told many people this. I was arrested my first two years pro. Nobody knows about this. Assaulting a police officer my first year, drunk and disorderly my second year. Wrong place, wrong time. I was actually sober the first one. It's a long story. I was a designated driver, and the guy I was taking home wanted to fight the guy who was an undercover cop in a drug sting. We screwed it up. I ended up in the paddy wagon. Second year, I'm waiting in line outside the bar. Guy jumps on my back. We fall down, knock people over in the paddy wagon again. I haven't even had the drink yet. This is my first two years. I'm an undrafted player. Why didn't the Penguins just say, you donkey, just go home? But they stuck with me, you know? So, like, there's no super highway. There's no Autobahn for me. It was all off-road, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, being a minor leaguer and just being happy being a pro, I finally, at one point, I said, I'm sick of riding the buses. And I got myself in the best shape of my life. And Paul Vincent, I don't know if you know Paul yeah, Vincent. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. I, oh, yeah. I went with Paul Vincent. It was actually myself and Adam Oates. We took power skating from Paul, and it took me to another level. And so, it's again, it's, there's just so many different steps that you take. And, and for some guys, it's not easy, but it was a more streamlined path. Mine was way more difficult, but it's who I am today. What, what was Gene Ubriaco like for you? And was, was, Lou, was Lou Angotti there when you... Lou was my first coach. Was he Okay, so he was your first, and then Ubriaco? And then Ubi, yeah. Okay. Ubi, Ubi literally was like a dad. I don't know why he took a liking to me, but I look at him more as a dad than my dad. He just had my back. Yeah. Tell you a quick story. So we got hired head coach of the Penguins. I was working construction in the summertime. And I was up lifting plywood. The only phone at the site was attached to a telephone pole. So nobody had that number, but my mom had it just in case of emergency. Boss goes down, answers the phone, thinks it's you know something for delivery or whatever. He's like, Borky, phone. I'm like, oh shit, it's my mom. She's the only one that would call. She said, Gene Ubriaco just called. Here's his number. He needs you to call him right away. I'm like, I call up Ubi. I'm like, what's up? He goes, I just got hired as the Penguins head coach. You're on the team. Don't F it up. That was the conversation. <laughs> That's the right message. And that was it. He goes, you're going to be on the team. Don't embarrass me and don't F it up. I'm like, okay. He had my back the whole way. Yeah. I grew up a big Blackhawks fan. I remember in 92, yeah. they, they play you in the Stanley Cup final. I'm like, there's no way they're going to beat Pittsburgh. But game one, there's a little bit of hope. They get up big, and you score. And I remember, I'm like, this is not going to work. This is just <laughs> this. Is, so when I think of Phil Boric, I think oh, of thanks. Chicago. Like, Breaking your heart, it just uh, uh, you, you started the comeback, or you scored a big goal in the comeback. We were down I, three nothing. I think it was four nothing. Actually, uh, it was three nothing. Then I scored to make it three one. They score again to make it four, four one. one right, you're right. Boom, boom, boom. I'll tell you a quick story because Eddie Belfour was in goal, uh-huh. and Bob Erie and I talk about this all the time. Because we we're kind of similar players. He goes, we're on the bench, and Bobby goes, hey, that Belfour, he doesn't look comfortable on wraparounds. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, don't try to jam, just wrap it and jam it in. He goes, take an extra step, come out from behind the goal line, and then try to go five hole on him. 
And if you get a chance to watch that goal, it's exactly what I did. Here comes Bork, but he's covered in front of the net. Chalios watching him, or make that marchment. Now there's Bork around the net, took a shot. He scores! Phil Bork! I picked the puck up from around my net. I didn't try to just jam it on his left skate. I took an extra step and beat him five hole. Ah, yeah, so Bob Airy is Bob Airy. I give Bobby this. full credit there. In round three, Eddie Belfort was beaten twice and nearly beaten another two times on wraparound goals. And I'm sure that's in the scouting report for the Penguins. And Phil Bork shows you right here that Belfort gets a little confused and out of position. But like, I remember watching this game and I was like, this is all Phil Bork's fault. Like, he, he started the comeback. I was We're like, the Penguinis, man. We never did anything <laughs> easy. I mean, what we end up with? 6-5 or 7-6, yeah. whatever and it was. Yager, I think it was Yager scored off the face-off in the last minute to win That was game. Mario off the face-off. Right. Okay. Yager had that ridiculous goal where okay. he came off the half wall. Sorry, it's, it's traumatic and, and memories they, for I think it was, was it Dwayne Sutter? They turned inside out and jockstrapped from the... I think it was Brent because Brent, Brent, Brent played for Brent Chicago Sutter. at yeah. the time. Yeah. 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 Oh, that was... Crazy, was, man. That's, uh, those are the Penguini days back then. <laughs> yeah. Pittsburgh... For all the great success, there's also been a lot of up oh, and yeah. down moments where, you know, we didn't know where this franchise was going to go. Was there ever a time you were worried the Penguins weren't going to make it? Oh, financially? Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. How many times? Yeah, there were times when, like, we couldn't get sticks in. Like, Steve Latin, our trainer, he's like, just, and I heard also there were times we'd stay at hotels and the credit card didn't work, and checks were bouncing. Like, National Hockey League, man, it's the greatest league in the world, but that's how much of a, you know, they, they were on a shoestring, you know, the way they had to do things. You know, and then when, with the new arena, if, you know, that would seem to be in limbo. We're going to Kansas City. I'm like, Kansas City, you kidding me? Like, <laughs> then we're going to Quebec. It's just like, but again, going through all those ups and downs from the 80s when we were so bad, and then we get Mario, and then, we're still not that great, and we lose in 1990 in overtime, um, uh, you know, to the Buffalo Sabers, and we get knocked out. You know, the, you know, in 08, we lose to Detroit in the final on home ice. You know, I felt like that's just our DNA. We have to go through the most heart wrenching type of losses, and then shortly thereafter we win. You look at the the Penguins since they've had success. There's been a lot of bad, and then good comes right after it. Well, I hope the good continues so you don't have to go through the bad anytime again. I know. So. I know. <laughs> I think as long as Sid's around, I think we're okay. And so yeah. what, what do you see on a day-to-day? Sid and Malkin yeah. and Latang too. Yeah. Like, you know, like just, you know, you, you were with an incredible group. We talked about them. Yeah. How does this group compare to that group? That's what's so shocking about what happened last year against the Rangers. Because I've been around some really crappy teams, Fridge, but I've been around some really good teams. It's a really good team. Because of the intangibles. So what separates the really good teams and the great teams? Intangibles. Again, strong is your weakest link. But also, do you really like each other to the point where you really love each other? And this team has such great chemistry. They're bonded so well that I really think great things are going to happen with this team. That's why it was so disappointing what happened last year. And injuries did play a part of it. I know excuses are for losers, right? But Mm -hmm. sometimes excuses are reasons. And those injuries to Sid and to Raquel and and Dumoulin and both the goaltenders, that's a big part of it. So if this team can stay healthy, it can do some really special things because there's some some special people in there that have some unfinished business. What goes through your mind when 
The Penguins are playing the Buffalo Sabres, and you see Matias Samuelson on the ice. I'm old. <laughs> I'm like I played with his dad you know? um, I think now that I'm a dad and I've got a 16 year old son who's a goalie that has aspirations yeah. that I remember when Buffalo came into Pittsburgh recently I looked across and there was Shell sitting there and I put myself there like what's that like like what's it like watch your kid play crazy right I can only imagine you know, and there's just so many, there's so many great stories out there from the Kachooks and on and on, right? So many dads that we, you know, we're close to the same age, yep. so we got to watch them play, mm-hmm. and now you're watching their kid play, mm-hmm. you know? It's pretty cool. How'd you let your kid be a goalie? Quick story. We're playing knee hockey in the basement. He's probably seven or eight, and he always wanted to be Kids goalie, defenseman, yeah. right? So he's like, hey, NHLer, let's go, man. Come on, give me what you got. I'm like, okay, here we go. So I ripped one, got him up in the collarbone. His name's Dylan. He goes down face first on the carpet. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm probably like, I'm like rubbing his collar. I'm like, you all right? You all right, Dylan? He's like, oh, dad, you got me. You got me really good. He goes, then he looks at me. He goes, I kind of like it too. I go, that's it. I go, you are a goalie. That's going to go one way or another. He's going to quit yeah. or you got oh, no. a goalie. Yeah. So now he's all about the gear and uh, he's, he's all in. Yeah. <laughs> You know much more than the public about what goes on. Mm-hmm. When you were watching that 36 to 48-hour period last summer when Malcolm was like, I'm going free agency, yeah. and Latang was close, yeah. did you think the band was done? I did, especially Gino. I thought just because Gino is he's a polarizing figure, isn't he? Because when he's bad, he can be pretty bad. But when he's good, oh, man. He still has the Gino Machino. Like when he gets kind of galloping, you know, the way he can skate. And he's 6'3, but he looks, sometimes he looks 6'6. Six, six he's a massive guy. Right? Massive and he's so guy. strong. And when he can, when he dominates, it's scary. And I thought, okay, maybe it's time for some fresh blood. Sometimes that's good. Change is good sometimes. But then when I heard that how bad Sid wanted to keep everybody together, I found myself where Sid was at. Like, this is special, man. This is, doesn't come around very often. So I started to understand it. Selfishly, I was thinking maybe it's time for a change because, we, you know, we, all these first-round knockouts. But then I thought, no, let's, let's go again, man. And was, I'm, I'm glad they did. I'm glad they did because it's a special group. Uh, this is, I think, something that Merrick would be interested in. I heard, like, Mike Lang keeps a pretty low profile now. Very low. But right? I heard that you and him are pretty tight like very tight how's he doing and how much do you guys talk every day um mostly text almost every game he'll give me a little something i mean i'm still in broadcasting i think because he's kind of taking me under his wing and little by little coached me up in a way found a way to talk to me that i'm like oh that's good mikey oh thanks mikey you know you know how to use my voice the volume the inflection to keep speaking from the heart, you know? You don't have to yell and scream, which I used to do early on because I, I get too excited, you know? It's just re- a bunch of little things. But his, his health is frail. Mm. I mean, he's probably down to jockey weight, you know? But, mm. but he's still got that, that fire, you know? The, some of the things he texts me or, or tells me that he watches the game. He watches all the little things. He's remarkable for a guy that never played the game. Play-by-play guy, he thinks the game like a player because he always put himself around great players and he asked the right questions. He wasn't afraid to ask players, what's it like to be in this situation? Mm-hmm. And he garnered all that information 
and that's what made him an exceptional broadcaster. It's a good lesson. You uh, you mentioned your son a second ago and said he's a equipment geek. He's a gear geek. Yeah. He lo- he loves all of it. Yeah. I got to ask you about one piece of your equipment when you played. Yeah, the Jofa. The Jofa. Yeah. I always anyone who ever uses it, I always ask the question, why? Chicks dug it. <laughs> made the made the mullet look good. Um, I don't know that. I guess that goes back to you know being in your twenties or thirties and being a, just a rebel. You know because there's a I don't know if you ever looked at there's a little sticker on the inside of the helmet that says this helmet is not to be used in the game of ice Correct. hockey. Correct. It's a broom ball helmet yeah. from Sweden. Yeah. Right. But it was so lightweight, and I almost felt like it was part of my living on the edge. You know, I had that bad climbing accident in 94, that, that whole thing, you know, where that's how I was just go, go, like, like push the envelope, get the adrenaline, you know, as I lived on the edge like that. And I felt that was just part of my persona. Mm-hmm. And you've got a young family now, right? Yeah. So how old are your children? You So I have an 18 year old daughter mm-hmm. that's going pre-med at Duquesne, downtown Pittsburgh. My Wow. Crazy Congratulations. Wow, that's great. awesome. I got a two year old little girl. Mm hmm. And uh, December 17th, I just had a little boy. Oh, congratulations. Bo Bork. Bo Bork. I love alliteration. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's a really good hockey name. Not to put any pressure on the young yeah. man. No, but a, I know. That's I a know. really good hockey name. I know. Name. I'm sizing them up for skates now. Yeah. <laughs> Right-hand shot or left-hand shot? Uh, yeah. He'll be a left-hand and, shot. And yeah. you said your daughter's pre-med at Duquesne? Pre-med Duquesne, That's yeah. pretty yeah, impressive. She was born profoundly deaf in both ears, so she has two cochlear implants. Mm-hmm. So she really wants to be in the medical field. She wants to be an anesthesiologist. And that probably made her uh, a high achiever, right? Like Very just much. We have an understanding in our family of what those challenges can be like. Yeah. So one thing I've really noticed is it makes people more competitive, more yeah. deter- So tell us a little bit about your daughter. Yeah, it's all in on school. That's yeah. the thing. Mm-hmm. I, I could What's her name? Madison. Madison. Okay. I could FaceTime her right now and say, Maddie, what are you doing? Homework. Homework. <laughs> Homework. <laughs> like, that's her path mm-hmm. to happiness. You know, she's more of a follower, obviously. Uh, but if you don't know anything about cochlear implants, whoever came up with this is brilliant, you know, mm-hmm. because it allows kids that can't hear to hear. So she's as normal. You barely know her speech is as normal because anybody that's deaf, they have that kind of nasally, yep. monotone type of speech. You'd never know. But she's, yeah. She's beautiful. She's great. She's, and yeah, she wants to be in the medical field. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, awesome. yeah thanks. Congratulations. Thanks. No, you know, I just want to say, Phil, like uh, you've been around the Penguins 40 years. And yeah. There's a reason because people want you around. So, you know, Jeff mentioned you came up undrafted yeah. the hard way. Uh, Gene Ubriaco believed in you. Yeah. Like, you know, you created this path. Man. I, I, I do want to ask one thing about that as well. You played, here comes my geeky junior question. <laughs> and I have a feeling I know who, who Elliot's answer, because I think he's given it before as well. While you played it, like, two years in Kingston, right? Two years, yep. Some really good players at that time. Was there one player that you looked at and you said, I don't know how this guy didn't make it? I know Elliot's answer would be Ernie Godden. Who you would have played against? That's before Phil's time. Oh, is he in Windsor, right? Yes. Yeah, in Windsor. Yeah. No, you, oh, you, you, oh, you did it. Yeah. No, oh, yeah. At the same time. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I thought. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, is is there one guy from junior who said, "I thought this guy was can't miss." I mean, there were real good players. Yeah. Was there a, an Evans that played for Peterborough? Yes. Smallish player. Paul Evans. Paul Evans. Yes. I remember playing the hand against him and going, "Holy moly!" You had that playoff series against them. A real good I'll tell you series. a quick story because I know we're wrapping up here. My roommate was Bernie Nichols. So 
the family we live with, they own two businesses. They own, the, uh, in the summer, a dual drive-in. In the winter, a fur store in downtown Kingston. So they said, hey, we're doing this full-page spread in the Kingston wig yeah. for our Christmas sale. We'd like you and Bernie to be in it. So Bernie's girlfriend was Miss uh, Junior Ontario, Tressa. She had this hot friend, this blonde German girl named Gundy. So I was with Gundy. He was with Tressa, the whole thing. They said, instead of us compensating you with money for this, you can have your pick of whatever coat you want in the store. So Bernie picks a full-length coyote. I took a full-length beaver. Bernie gets 40 grand to sign with the Kings, puts it all into an electric blue Trans Am. So close your eyes for a second. Here's these, <laughs> these two donkeys, okay? Electric blue Trans Am, middle of winter, Kingston, Ontario, full-length coyote, full-length beaver. We're like a couple of pimps walking in to play a junior game. It was awesome, man. It was so awesome. That's <laughs> junior hockey. Huh? I, sold, I hope you still have it somewhere. <laughs> no, I, so, I sold it. I uh, sold it. it was, I got tired of dragging it around everywhere, you know? Uh, I wish I did have it, though. It'd be great. Yeah. Doug Evans. Doug Evans. Bingo. Doug Evans. You I got, got the it. wrong yep. Evans. Yep. Doug Evans. Yeah, that's a, that's a guy just... Sean Babcock was another tough hombre that played in Kings. There's a bunch, you know, Mike Moffat, Mike Stuthers. We had, we had a fun team there. Stuthers was... Would he play raw bone? Yeah, he was mean. Tough. Yeah. Hurt you mean. Kirk Muller on that team? Kirk Muller was, I ended up moving to a different family. Kirk Muller was my next door neighbor. I moved to a different family. So, yeah, he was, um, what, 16? 15 years old, I think. Yeah, Yeah. he played a few games as a 15-year-old, I think. Two or three games at the end of the year. And then he plays as a 16-year-old, and yeah. Great stories, great memories. Yeah, uh, should be a wonderful Thanks day. Thanks for doing this. You're Looking welcome. forward to the classic. Thanks so much for spending a lot of time yeah, enjoy with us the today. Game. This is fun. Thanks. Well, we really hope you enjoyed that interview with Phil Bork. We want to thank Phil for spending a lot of time with us during a very busy day for him. He spent you know, a large majority of his, his morning hanging out with me and Fried. So uh, we very much thank him for that. Uh, and once again, uh, the book, If These Walls Could Talk, Pittsburgh Penguins edition, stories from the Pittsburgh Penguins ice, locker room, and press box. Uh, still available everywhere, Amazon, Indigo, wherever you get or order your books. I would recommend checking out triumphbooks.com. Taking us out as a three-piece indie pop band from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Denora got their start in 2006, releasing their popular single, She's Just a Girl. Since then, the band has dropped four full-length records. From their latest album, here's Denora with Fall. And 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy. Enjoy.